This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And since we are officially in October now, we're going to talk again about some kind of Halloween-y themed things. Just a little spook factor. Scariness. Yeah. So uh, this time it's mass murder related. Yes. But in, uh, you know, an interesting way. A, a musical way. Yeah. Maybe. Well, sometimes. Uh, thanks to Endless Theatrical Productions, the Sondheim musical, and the recent Tim Burton film that was based on it, Sweeney Todd is a character everybody knows of. Uh, you know, he's a terrifying killer who murders his victims when they're in a position of weakness because he's a barber and they're lying there prone beneath his blade. And there are many instances of the demon barber story that are actually touted uh, as a tale based on real life events. Like there will be stage plays and, you know, the program will say based on real life events. Yeah, I always wonder, is that like, is that really real, real life events well, or, or is this like Fargo real life events? Yeah. So uh, that's something that's come up many times throughout the years. And it's a story I find fascinating. Uh, and much like Jack the Ripper, there are truths and legends that have kind of gotten mashed together. And so historians and scholars have had to like sort through the gore and find the nuggets of reality. Uh, and so that's why we're doing that one today. We're kind of going to talk through some of those. Yeah. Easy to see why it's a really gripping story. <laughs> I feel like if you want to have tension in a movie, you can just have a character be shaved by another person with a straight razor. <laughs> straight razors do have like the instant association of I could die from this. Yeah. Let's just have like long shots of somebody being shaved with straight razor. So add to that the taboo of cannibalism and the intrigue of unknowingly participating in it. Uh, and you've got something readers and theater goers can. You will pardon the pun, sink their teeth into. Yeah. Uh, from the opening lines of any of the versions of it to the horrible pronouncement that's made uh, by an officer in the denouement of the Penny Dreadful version, which is, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I fear that what I'm going to say will spoil your appetites, but the truth is beautiful at times. And I have to state that Mrs. Lovett's pies are made of human flesh. It's like one of those stories that audiences have just loved for more than 150 years. Uh, incidentally, if you read The Penny Dreadful, and we'll link to a version of it, that teeny mall happens at the very end. Yeah. Like, it's pretty abrupt. It's kind of like all the people are in line waiting for their pies, 
and the officer comes in and says that, and then they all go, ah, and then that's the end. And then that's the end of the story. <laughs> and scene. Like, it just wraps up really abruptly. Uh, but it really all started, at least the versions that have become very popular culturally, uh, with one writer. And his name was Thomas Peckett Prest. And you have probably not heard of him unless you're really into this lore. But he's a pretty pivotal figure in the Sweeney Todd story. And I will say this at the outset, that there is still some debate, fringe debate, uh, among historians about whether or not he was the one that wrote this. You'll kind of see why in just a moment. Um, but most people accept that, yes, this was his work. And he was born on May 13th in 1810 in Middlesex, and he was the third child of a blacksmith named William Prest and his wife, Ann Peckett. He was trained as a typesetter, and he began working for George Drake in London at the age of 25, and he edited and printed songbooks and compilations of short fiction. And just a year after he started that work uh, with George Drake in, in 1836, Press was hired by a London publisher named Edward Lloyd. And he was hired along with two other writers named William Bale Bernard and Morris Barnett to write copies of Dickens' work and cash in on the famous writer's reputation. And uh, the Pickwick papers had been extremely popular at the time. And so Lloyd just cooked up this plan to hire a few writers to churn out similar stories to um, sell to eager readers. I feel like this was like the 1836 version of the Bu- BuzzFeed listicle. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> like, kind let's of. take this thing that's really popular and make it really super popular. Except it was a much weaselier than that because they never gave credit. They just stole the work. <laughs> uh, and those three men wrote under one pen name, which was Boz. Uh, although Prest is given the most credit for the work done which is why some people still argue that it could have been one of the other men. But, I mean, they produced titles that were like Oliver Twist. That's T-W-I-S-S, not Oliver <laughs> Twist. And the, the post-humorous papers of the Pickwick Club. So they were doing these very obvious knockoffs. It's kind of like if you buy a DVD from a street vendor and you realize it's not really the movie you think it is. Right. It was very much like that. But part of it was that they were writing these very cheap versions. Mm-hmm. Um, Edward Lloyd was printing really cheap versions because actual nice books were too pricey for many people. Uh, and a lot of people couldn't read that well, so it would have been a huge investment. So these are like the cheapy versions that they would could read and feel that they had gotten their their literature and their entertainment, and they really probably didn't care so much about whether it was authentic. Right. You know who cared about whether it was authentic was Charles Dickens. Yeah, and he was not so delighted. No, yeah. He sued over the extremely obvious copyright infringement that was going on. But Lloyd's argument was that the works being produced by his enterprise were so bad that no true reader could mistake them for actual Dickens' work. And the judge agreed with that argument. Yeah, which to me is kind of weird. It's kind of like going, ah, the rubes don't know the difference anyway, so it's really not a big deal. These people couldn't even read your books. Yeah, I just had... Which is a very strange... Well, and kind of offensive. Yeah. But at this point, even though there had been this plagiarism suit, Press had kind of settled into his career as a plagiarist, and so he would just whip out title after title based on the work of famous writers. And they usually published in penny weekly papers that were um, run by Lloyd. And then he met a lady. Yeah. In November 1842, Press married Elizabeth Barbara Moss. But unfortunately, their newlywed happiness did not go on for very long. Elizabeth died six months later of uterine cancer. And then after his wife's death, there's kind of a gap in terms of what we know about Prest's life. It seems like he just kept to himself and really focused on work. 
Yeah, he never married again, and he did continue to to um, to write prolifically. He was producing a great deal of work, even though most of it was ripoff work. Uh, some accounts will claim that Prest wrote more than 200 titles during the decade and change that he was working for Lloyd, but the real number, still impressive, is significantly lower. It's uh, guessed, again, we have that mystery of several people writing under one name, but it's believed that somewhere between 50 and 60 titles were produced by Prest. Uh, but we don't know the exact count because there were other other writers uh, in that pie. Right. His work covered a variety of themes. There were nautical tales, adventures, and eventually true life crime stories. And when he wasn't plagiarizing other people's fiction, he would try to look for interesting stories in the newspapers to come up with ideas for what to write about, which is a little more legitimate. Yes. <laughs> uh, and in in the end, we'll talk a little bit more about his writing and kind of his legacy. But uh, So in 1846... Press debuted the character of Sweeney Todd in a serialized story which was called The String of Pearls, a Romance. And it was set in 1785, and it was published in The People's Periodical, which was one of Lloyd's Penny Dreadfuls. And initially, Sweeney Todd was kind of a secondary character, but he very quickly became the focus of the series because he was so popular. And the series was an immediate hit, and by the end of its six-month run, there was a stage adaptation already launched. A playwright by the name of George Dibden Pitt retitled the story The String of Pearls, The Fiend of Fleet Street. He advertised it as a fact-based story. And the stage adaptation debuted on March 1st, 1847, at the Hoxton Theater, which was known for producing very sensational melodramas. And from that point on, it was almost like Sweeney took on a life of his own. He became part of public consciousness. It was a story that was repeated as true so many times that people began to believe it. People that couldn't read would be told the story by people who had read the book or the series, and they would say, no, and it's all true. And it kind of made people believe that it was true. Um Never mind that there was no actual evidence of the man. There had has not been evidence found of an actual barbershop on Fleet Street during the late 18th century, which is when the play was set. And, you know, the mid-1800s in London were times when there were gruesome and horrifying things reported in the papers every single day. And there was a public appetite even for fictionalized version of horror. Uh, so it was kind of like a, an ambiance that was really ready for something like this to be believed. Uh, and further giving the Butcher Barber story additional credibility, even though there wasn't real evidence, was the fact that a lot of the plays and Penny Dreadful's uh, stories that were being produced at the time really were based in factual events. Uh, so it was kind of a, a perfect morass for this character to become considered an actual historical figure when, in fact, not so much. Right. Uh, Another probable influence is the role of the barber in the 18th century. A lot of them were barber surgeons, and there was already kind of an association of cutting people open. Uh, We've talked before about bloodletting as a medical practice a little bit, and, and that's something that barbers often did. And that association makes it easy for that part of the Sweeney Todd story to be believed. So dental work, bloodletting, and other minor surgeries were all part of the barber-surgeon's trade. Yeah, they would do amputations. They would, I mean, they were, they already kind of had the chopping people up thing going on. Yeah, I'm going to take another. To do it maliciously. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to give another shout out to the podcast Sawbones, which has whole episodes (laughs) on both bloodletting and amputation. Yeah, whew. 
Uh, and while we think about that horror, do you want to pause for just a moment and talk about our sponsor? Yeah, let's let all that settle for a second. Yeah. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful. So we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020. And like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah. And during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So back to the demon barber. Yes. Uh, so while the character of Sweeney Todd is a fiction, there actually have, may have been a true seed or two in the mix after all, because there are a number of actual events that happened and were reported and would have been in books and papers that um, may have, and I would say even likely did, feed into Prest's characterization. So as we've talked about before, he did sometimes go combing through the newspapers to try to find ideas. And it's possible that he stumbled across the following passage from the annual register, which was dated December 1784. A most remarkable murder was perpetrated in the following manner by a journeyman barber that lives near Hyde Park Corner, who had been for a long time past jealous of his wife, but could no way bring it home to her. A young gentleman, by chance, coming into his master's shop to be shaved and dressed and being in liquor, mentioned his having seen a fine girl home to Hamilton Street, from whom he had certain favors the night before, and the same time describing her person, the barber, concluding it to be his wife, in the height of frenzy, cut the gentleman's throat from ear to ear and absconded. And then in a register of criminals and crimes that were incarcerated in London's Newgate prison, which uh, should not be taken as an official record. Some people do interpret it that way, but my understanding is that 
No. Was it because the records were kind of just slapdash at the point? Yeah, there's also some theory that there was some sensationalism at work there as well. Uh, but it mentions a 16th century Scottish mass murderer by the name of Sawney Bean, which some people say sounds something like Sweeney Todd. Um, <laughs> it has some of the same letters. Yeah, it's the same number of syllables. Uh, but Bean is said to have raised his entire family in the tradition of murder. And they lived in a cave as a clan, uh, and they would rob and kill their victims as people just passed by, and then, gruesomely, they would eat them. And the entire family, according to this account, which is n- not uh, substantiated, Again, this would have happened a long time ago when substantiation would have been difficult to um, record and still have. Uh, the entire family was executed, according to the Newgate calendar, which is this register of criminals. And Bean's wife was allegedly a witch uh, in many versions of the story, which, if press took inspiration from the register, may have informed his development of Mrs. Lovett's character a little bit. This this whole clan could be an episode on its own one day. It kind of reminds me of the Peacock family on the X-Files. It's much bigger, though. Yeah. They were like a clan of, uh, some numbers I've read are like 48 to 50 people that lived in this cave, and it was kind of this weird inbred family of cannibals in Scotland. It really could be its own whole story, and it's quite fascinating. And I'm sure any of our uh, listeners who are kind of into historical horror have heard of Sonny Bean, because it's, it's one of those big... Boogeyman. One of the articles that I read, I think it was in the an old BBC archive, uh, referred to him as the Hannibal Lecter of Scotland. So he's got his own whole mythology. Another tale which really bears striking similarities to Prest, Prest's Sweeney Todd story took place in Paris, uh, allegedly around 1800. And according to accounts that were recorded by Joseph Fouché, who was the Parisian minister of police from 1799 to 1815, uh, and who figures heavily in other parts of French history, uh, in his 1816 book, so it would have been right after he retired from his p- position, uh, he wrote a book called Archives of the Police. And in his book, he mentions a barber named Beck, who, in cooperation with a pastry cook named Mornay, uh, committed a series of grisly murders, and then uh, Beck would hand off the bodies to the cook for use in meat pies. Super familiar, no? Like I think I've heard this story. It's almost exactly the same story. On a stage play that the song is stuck in my head <laughs> the whole time we've been talking. Uh, and although the pastry cook in this version uh, was a male, the um, it's a little different, but it's so similar in every other way. But this particular story is also of questionable authenticity. Uh, some have asserted that uh, Fouché was trying to write kind of a sensational book after his retirement from the police, just kind of as a, you know, a money-making endeavor. Um, but it, even though it was questioned, uh, it was republished in London in a magazine called The Telltale in 1824. So it's entirely possible that Prest would have come across it at some point, uh, although we don't know for certain. And I didn't include it in my notes, but there is also one other Parisian barber murderer story that uh, I want to say goes back to the 1400s. It's really shadowy. There's not a lot of details, but it is kind of the like, it was a barber and he slit people's throats. And then meat pies. Yeah, just, just another similar boogeyman kind of story that uh, it, there's really not much uh, to go on with that one. But I feel it's worth just kind of a side mention. Right. And th- there have been numerous examinations of various elements of the story. 
and all kinds of books written about whether Sweeney Todd was a real person. We don't really have conclusive evidence that there is one person who was definitely the inspiration for Sweeney Todd, but the barber and his cohort Lovett have become part of the mythology of London. Yeah, a few years ago there was a, um, it's more than a few, but a while back there was a historian who claimed he had studied all of these things and wrote a book that was about the real Sweeney Todd, but uh, it really didn't cite a lot of actual sources, and it, it read very fictional, so it's been very, very controversial, even though, and I believe that historian has since passed, um, and I think calling him a historian, um, some people would take issue with. Uh, but so there's there have been attempts to prove out that there was a real person here. But really, the best we have to go on are some of these other things that probably were feeding into the public consciousness and certainly would probably have come to the attention of someone who routinely paged through papers and police journals looking for story ideas. But the interesting thing is really the life that happened to this character and and this story after uh, press kind of let go of it and let it be its own thing. Just, you know, long after the publication of String of Pearls, we're still telling the boogeyman story of this slaughtering barber. Uh, and this phenomenon, what's interesting about it is that it started almost immediately after the story was published. Like, it became such an instant hit. And I think we're so used to in modern media, like, there will be things that get very, very popular and we glom onto them and it's everywhere for a little while. But it's kind of a flash in the pan. It dies off. Mm-hmm. But Sweeney Todd has just kept going and going and going and going for more than 15 decades. Yeah. So we mentioned the 1847 melodrama staged by George Dibden Pitt. But within months, there were also knockoff versions of the story that were selling tickets all over London, which kind of reminds us of how Prest got his start as an author knocking off Charles Dickens. Yeah, there was just a lot of... um a lot of knockoffs I don't happening. Wanna, I was going to say creative borrowing, but that's way too kind. Yeah. Well, people really were just trying to trade in on the popularity of a thing by putting a perpetually, you know, more slapdashy versions of things out. It's kind of like making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You like that's still going on today. I think if I could time travel, one of the things I would do would be to go back to London during this time and watch like eight different versions of the Sweeney Todd story and see how different or alike they were. Uh, and I bet some of them had crazy character name changes, which would be very entertaining. It's reminding me of like the the Halloween costumes that are clearly a, a trademarked character, but are not actually licensed. Yeah. <laughs> and they're called they're called things like weird clown, yeah. <laughs> like happy cookie puppet. Like those are. I have a feeling the same thing was going on. Uh, in 1936, Sweeney Todd got a new life in the first film adaptation of the tale. And Sweeney Todd was played by the actor Todd Slaughter, and Slaughter really got a lot of mileage out of this. He went on to play that role repeatedly in theatrical productions pretty much for the rest of his career. So Sweeney gave back to the theatrical community (laughs) in this regard. In 1959, the story was adapted into a ballet, which I find hilarious. It was uh, choreographed by John Cranko and performed by the Royal Ballet Company. And then Stephen Sondheim's musical version, uh, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, debuted on Broadway in 1979. And it starred Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovett and Len Caru in the lead role. And in March 2nd of 1979, which I only just noticed late in the game, I think they debuted it. 
Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like people working on yachts? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on yachts? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. We got Below Deck Mediterranean and Below Deck Sailing Yacht. And we're going to release an episode every Monday through Friday so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Since podcasters are the scum of the earth and below the people who work below deck, we record in the bowels of the boat. That's right. We're just two fabulous idiots trying to catch you up on one of the most wonderful shows on television with our self-proclaimed quirky and offbeat personalities. I never said that. Okay. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At the same time, like on the anniversary of its original stage debut. Ah. Um but he gave there's a, a somewhat mixed review of the play in the New York Times by critic Richard Eater, and it stated that, quote, there is, in fact, no serious social social message in Sweeney. And at the end, when the cast lines up on the stage and points to us singing it, there are Sweeney's all about the point is unproven. These are defects, vital ones, but they are all failures of an extraordinary, fascinating and often ravishingly lovely effort. None of those are things that would make my review of the musical Sweeney Todd a mixed review. <laughs> Mine would mostly be that uh, I, I don't super care for the Sondheim of nature that makes Sondheim be Sondheim. Yeah, I'm not a huge Sondheim fan, but his it is interesting because it's a it's um a fun review to read because he is clearly so taken with how beautifully the the show is staged but that he does kind of find it a shrugger by the end of it where he's like oh, I don't know it's fun it was fun a couple hours I have had the same like one line <laughs> of the song about the demon barber like the whole time we've been talking I'm sorry I've stuck managed, in my head I've managed to stay uh, earworm free yeah. Probably because I'm not the hugest fan of musicals to begin with. Well, and that's, that's part of my problem is I think that's the only line from any of the songs in the show that I know and it's over and over. Well, and I, I mean, I'll confess, I have the Tim Burton version and I watch it with some level of frequency, but it's largely about the costumes. Um, and it's, it's fun again and, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. So I think though the, the reason I wanted to pull that out of Richard Eater's review was that I think he's on to something here about the appeal of Sweeney Todd, that it is this warning about a thing that's very terrifying and scary, but there's never been enough substantive proof to really make it feel life-threatening. It's really kind of like an urban legend. Yeah. You know, it's like the the sorority girl who wakes up and finds her roommate has been murdered and there's writing and blood on the wall. Like, it's that kind of story with that kind of appeal. Yeah, it's super scary, but because you never know a person who actually went through that. Like, no one, you know, I'm sure someone will say that they do, but most of those people probably don't want to talk about it and tell it in kind of excited whispers. Right. Whereas this is one of those things that it's like, and there's this demon barber, and people could do that. You could get killed by a barber. But because there's not a grounding in reality, it it still maintains that excitement and the fervor around it. Yeah, it's thrilling without necessarily being actually scary. Yeah. And now, I mean, since uh, barbers and certainly barber surgeons are not really a thing, I mean, barbers still are, but not quite the same style that these would have been. It's even less of an immediate 
um, threat. Threat. So it's kind of we can even glom on a little harder to the excitement of it. But even despite that um, kind of mediocre review, that production won eight Tony Awards. I think largely because it was so unique at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been staged, that Sondheim's version has been staged hundreds, if not thousands of times since by theater companies of all sizes. It's always a big ticket seller. I mean, community theaters love to do it because they bring in huge audiences for them usually. Um, it's been done in like every theater in America almost. I wouldn't say that was an actual fact, but it's almost that prolific. I wish there were a Lerner and Lowe version of Sweeney Todd. I would be all into that. (laughs) Or Riders and Hammerstein, Sweeney Todd. Super exciting. (laughs) Really peppy. (laughs) Clang, clang, clang with the razor. Tracy, no. No. (laughs) Okay, so in an interview with the BBC in 2005, as part of a press junket for a new adaptation of the Sweeney Todd story, Producer and writer Joshua St. Johnston relays that while he didn't find any solid evidence of a true demon barber of Todd's ilk, he could easily see how that kind of atrocity could have gone almost unnoticed in London in the late 1700s. He describes the 1760s world as uh, his research turned up as, quote, a brutal and brutalizing world. And that we don't know of any real serial killers from that time might be more to do with the fact that murder was so easy to get away with rather than that there weren't any. Um, As a fun side note, uh, in his book, Boys Will Be Boys, about the famed characters of Victorian penny dreadfuls in the dicey publishing industry in Victorian London, writer E.S. Turner makes an interesting assertion that uh, we can actually thank Sweeney Todd for the transition from the use of the word barber to the word hairdresser, because barber became so associated with horror for a while that it fell out of use in the general public. I don't know if that's true. I don't either. I didn't uh, find anything to fact check it, but he kind of tells that as like a an interesting tale about how the language evolved as a consequence. Yeah, I don't think when Patrick talks about getting his hair cut, I don't think he says that he goes to the hairdresser. Well, no, but we were. You can make the argument that we've ebbed back away. Okay. You know what I mean? That at the time that Sweeney Todd was becoming popular uh, in the 1800s, for a while, barber stopped being quite as popular a term mm. hairdresser rose up and now it's you don't even say hairdresser you say stylist anyway mm-hmm. um, <laughs> let's talk about the language used to talk about people who cut hair yeah and estheticians and all there's plenty of other language but that just was an interesting side note pressed who we could call the father of Sweeney Todd, died of tuberculosis, which I feel like has been a theme on the podcast We've talked lately. a lot about tuberculosis lately because it was extremely prevalent. Yeah, and I, I certainly did not intend to find more tuberculosis doing this one, but there it was uh, on June 5th of 1859. And he was a pauper at the time, even though he'd created this, you know, renowned and very long-lived character. And uh, Prest was buried in an unmarked grave as part of a pauper's burial that he was basically given by the government. And, but he's now recognized as one of the most widely read authors of the 1840s. And there's even a little bit of movement of people that are trying to um, suggest that even though he was writing these uh, basically plagiarized pieces, that he was actually a, a much better author than people give him credit for. And I'll be interested to see where that goes in the coming years, yeah. if people can really put together some scholarship that makes that case clearly. But it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you have some listener mail? I do. I do indeed. And this one is very, very fun. I love it. And it's from our listener, Joe. 
And Joe says, hello, I'm an avid listener to Stuff You Missed in History. It gets me through car drives, paperwork, and boring work events. I just listened to the podcast on the Nazca lines, and I loved it. Last year, I traveled down to Peru and visited Lima, Cusco, and Machu Picchu. It was the trip of a lifetime. I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. I have not been, and I want to really bad. Uh, The city of Cusco is the most fascinating place I have ever been. You mentioned food being a primary motivation in travel. I agree. And Cusco was definitely a wonderful experience. I had fresh quail eggs served out of a hat, coca leaf tea for the 14,000-foot altitude, and the highlight of the trip, coyo. Coyo is guinea pig in Quechua, the ancient language that the people of the mountains speak. I was there over Easter weekend and witnessed the traditional meal of Coyo on a Holy Thursday, which uh, they believe Jesus ate at the Last Supper. It tasted exactly like Canadian bacon, only in the shape of a guinea pig. We only managed a few tastes since we could not bear dismantling the poor childhood pet. Oh, no. Uh, I I don't think it was any child's actual pet, but that was his association. This, combined with the ambiance of the beautiful architecture in which the foundations and lower levels of the buildings... uh, are Incan carved rock and the tops are classical Spanish from the conquistadors makes for a wonderful experience. Yay. That sounds really fun and fabulous. I probably could not emotionally handle it because of that whole um, animal connection thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> right. I want to be in my head, but uh, it's difficult in my in my stomach. You know what it reminds me of? What? Uh, there, there's a series of books that I like a lot. That are about basically what if there were dragons during the Napoleonic Wars? And they're the Temeraire books. And the third to last one, like the last one's not out yet, so one before the current one. They're in uh, they're in South America. And some of the food that they talk about talks about sounds a lot like this food. Man, South American cooking doesn't get as much uh, play, I think, in the US in terms of like adopted cuisines from other places like the way other uh, cuisines will kind of go, go through these surges in popularity. Peruvian is getting a little bit more play but Brazilian steakhouse. There's some really delicious stuff that mm-hmm. we have no idea about yet. Uh, but Joe, that sounds so fun and thank you so much for sharing your, your trip stories because that sounds like an adventure beyond compare almost. Yes. I want to hear more about the quail eggs in the hat though. That- How were they prepared? Were they cooked in the hat? Did they just dump them in the hat? I gotta know. Uh, tell us <laughs> if you have eaten things in hats or <laughs> you want to share anything else with us, you can do so by emailing us at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook.com slash History Class Stuff. We're also on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Pinterest, Pinning Up a Storm. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, I actually have two things. One, you can go to our website and search the term serial killer, which will turn up an article called How Serial Killers Work. And if you just want to play, you can type in the word Sweeney Todd. And the article that you will get is, does it matter how many blades are in your razor? <laughs> which I just think is super funny and sort of a wonderfully, um, you know, odd, oddly associated thing. Uh, if you would like to learn about those things or anything else your mind can conjure, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. 
As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney. And I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.